It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to episode 53 of Unformidable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded Mets in this franchise's quirky history, because for us, every player who dons the orange and blue is, in some way or another, unformidable. My name is Christian Romo, I'm filling in this week for Rob. As someone who was born, raised, and currently lives in Los Angeles, I am not going to pass up an opportunity to talk about one of the many LA to Mets connections. Now, Brian Bannister is not actually from L.A. He's from Scottsdale, Arizona, and he went to Chaparral High School, also the home of Paul Konerko. But after leading Chaparral to the state title in 1999, he decided to fly to greener pastures westward. For those of you that may not be aware, the University of Southern California has arguably the most decorated college baseball program in the country. They've won 12 national championships, while no other D1 school has won more than six. They've graduated legends of the game like Tom Seaver, Randy Johnson, and Mark McGuire. You might not know that USC has a highly successful baseball program, partly because not a lot of baseball fans follow the college game, but mostly because USC hasn't fielded a good team in nearly 20 years. And that's where our story starts. Bannister walked onto the USC baseball team as a second baseman in the year 2000, and only made the transition to pitcher full-time a little way through his freshman year. He made only three appearances as a freshman as the team made the College World Series, but he transitioned to a much bigger role the following season. The 2001 Trojans were the last great USC baseball team, and one that I watched quite a bit in person as a young kid with a developing baseball obsession. 
When my parents and I went to the ballpark, we watched a team with national championship capabilities and expectations. And even though they were fairly stacked all around, there was one player who shined above all. A pitcher so dominant and revered that we knew he wasn't only going to the majors, but also dominating the majors. His name was Mark Pryor, and he did live up to his expectations, albeit briefly before flaming out rather tragically in the end. That 2001 USC team was especially stacked with pitching talent. They featured three future Major League arms in Pryor, Bannister, and Anthony Reyes, while the ace of the team was arguably Rick Currier, a small right-hander drafted by the Yankees in the sixth round in 2001 who never broke through to the majors. What might surprise people about Bannister was that he wasn't really a highly touted player on that 2001 team, but their surprisingly effective infielder turned closer. It's not unheard of to see a player like that turn into a Major League starter. I mean, that basically describes Jacob deGrom's career at Stetson before he became the best pitcher in the world. But you can be forgiven for not seeing Bannister as the longest tenured professional to come out of that 2001 team. Bannister featured a fastball that topped out in the high 80s, a changeup he used as his primary out pitch, and a curveball he struggled to command in college. The only flashy thing about him was his name, with his father Floyd Bannister, a 15-year Major League pitcher, and his brothers Brett and Corey both pitching in the Pac-10, with Brett spending some time in the Mariners minor league system. Scouts saw Bannister as smart and competitive, and with his Major League pedigree, they may have decided he was worth a draft pick, but that didn't translate into results early on. He made 35 appearances as a reliever in 2001, as USC once again fell on the College World Series, and not having made the final tournament since. Bannister took a medical redshirt his junior year in 2002, and when the season ended, the Red Sox selected him in the 45th round. Bannister bet on himself in return for the 2003 season, posting an unremarkable 6-5 record with a 4.58 ERA in his first full year as a starter. He didn't make all-conference honors, and he wasn't even the best pitcher on the team. He was an academic All-American, soon graduating with a fine arts degree with a special interest in photography, but that doesn't have much to do with baseball. His stock ascended anyway, and with the 199th overall pick, the Mets made him their 7th round selection. They gave him a $95,000 signing bonus. Bannister turned out to be the best player the Mets drafted that year. That was the year they took Lasting's Millage with the 12th overall pick, but with only 30 combined Major League games from the other players selected, it was a rather forgettable selection of talent. Bannister wasn't really expected to play a significant role on the Major League club, but a couple things happened that expedited his development. The first happening was the horrible, awful, no-good, very bad trade the Mets made to send Scott Kazmier to the Rays for Victor Zambrano in 2004. It was a horrendously lopsided transaction, but Bannister was probably the biggest benefactor in the Mets organization, as it provided space for a promotion from single-A Brooklyn to double-A Binghamton. The second happening was a bit more encouraging, in that Bannister ran with the opportunity. Now featuring a signature cutter that he developed in the fall, Bannister turned from a mid-round flyer to a serious pitching prospect, posting a 9-4 record in Binghamton and even starting the AA All-Star game. Bannister even got 8 starts at AAA Norfolk and turned in a 4-1 record with a 3.18 ERA. With a much-improved Mets team with a fairly sizable hole in the starting rotation, Bannister now had a good chance not only to pitch for the Major League Club, but to even see a few starts in 2006. And just like he did in his minor league stints, Bannister made the most of his spring training invite. Not only did he make the team, and not only did he make the starting rotation, but the Mets pegged him as their number two starter. Well, maybe not really, but at least he would be starting game number two against the Nationals. And the first start went really well for him. With his parents sitting behind home plate for his first major league start, Bannister threw six innings and gave up only two hits, his one blemish allowing a three-run home run to Nick Johnson in the sixth. 
He was in line for the win when he exited the game, but a Ryan Zimmerman home run off of Billy Wagner in the top of the ninth blew that opportunity for Bannister. Still, it was an encouraging performance for both Bannister and the Mets, who spent the entire 2006 season fashioning a starting rotation with spit and tape. They needed a young, reliable innings eater to fill in the gaps, and seemingly out of nowhere, Bannister was proving to be the guy. He got his first win six days later, again against the Nationals, but this time in Washington. He won seven innings and gave up one run, a seventh inning home run to Alfonso Soriano. He only struck out one batter, relying instead on 15 flyball outs, but allowing three hits over seven innings is an impressive sophomore outing for anyone. He even got two hits as a batter, with a single, double, and sacrifice bunt in the box score. On a team that many expected to be good, Bannister was turning out to be the unexpected success story, and one that would potentially be critical to the team's championship aspirations. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Bannister's magical April continued with three more very good starts. Five innings allowing one run against the Brewers on the 16th for a second win of the season, five innings allowing one run against the Padres on the 21st, and five innings allowing three runs against the Giants on the 26th. Unfortunately, that's where Bannister's luck started to run out. His fifth start against the Giants was his most difficult start yet, and probably his best all-around game thus far. He did allow three runs to a Giants lineup that did not feature Barry Bonds as a starter, but he also recovered two of those runs by himself, driving both in on a one-out double in the fourth. He hit another double in the sixth inning, eventually scoring the go-ahead run on a Kazuo Matsui double, but upon returning to the dugout, manager Willie Randolph took him out of the game with a hamstring injury. What made Bannister special is what took him down in the end. He was a former infielder, so it shouldn't have been much of a surprise that Bannister fielded his position well, and even scratched out four hits in his first 12 major league at-bats. But someone forgot to tell him that pitchers don't run the bases in the show, or maybe someone did and he didn't listen. He was young after all, and without much hype, he probably figured he should do anything to help his team win. But maybe if he limits that double to a single and jogs to third on the Matsui hit, he may have continued starting for the Mets that season. Instead, the Mets put him on the then 15-day DL and then the 60-day DL, mostly spent rehabbing his injury at Port St. Lucie. He tried to return too quickly with a start at AAA Norfolk, but then suffered another leg injury and went back to Florida. He made one more start for the Mets in August and registered his only loss of the season, though his four runs allowed over six innings was certainly workable for the Mets' offense. He got two more appearances in mop-up duty in September, and then the Mets left him off the playoff roster. By that time, the team likely saw him as damaged goods, a low-level prospect not worth the injuries and certainly not a solution to their shallow starting pitching. 
In the first overall trade of the winter meetings that December, the Mets sent Bannister to the Kansas City Royals for hard-throwing reliever Ambiorix Burgos, by all accounts selling high on a pitcher who didn't have much of a future on the Major League roster. With the team losing both Chad Bradford and Roberto Hernandez, socking up the bullpen with a power arm was a reasonable move at the time. But as it turns out, this is another trade the Mets would come to regret, and once again, Bannister was the benefactor. On a Royals team that won only 69 games in 2007, Brian Bannister managed a 12-9 record with a sub-4 ERA. Per baseball reference, his 2.9 wins above replacement placed him third on the team, ahead of even Zach Granke, who, to be fair, hadn't found his Cy Young-level stuff quite yet. He even finished third in the Rookie of the Year voting, ahead of even Daisuke Matsuzaka. Ambiorix Burgos, meanwhile, made only 17 relief appearances for the Mets in 2007, honestly pitching quite well. But he never appeared again in the majors after that season, for the Mets or anyone else. Now, this is the part of the show that dives into useless speculation, but it's hard not to wonder what the 2007 Mets would have looked like with Brian Bannister as their fourth or fifth starter. The team actually got really good pitching seasons from John Main, Oliver Perez, and El Duque Orlando Hernandez. And who knows, maybe Bannister would have stayed hurt or wouldn't have pitched as well for the Mets as he did for the Royals in 2007. But taking Mike Pelfrey's pretty bad 13 starts and replacing them with 13 starts from Bannister would have almost assuredly been an upgrade. And for a team that missed a playoff spot by one game, that might have made the difference. Maybe the 2007 New York Mets finished what they couldn't in 2006, with Bannister now a key part of their playoff roster. Maybe he lifts the trophy. That's probably giving too much credit to Bannister, who was never as good as he was in 2007. In his next three seasons with the Royals, he put up records of 9-16, and 7-12, and 7-12 and again, certainly not helped by the 2000s Royals being a garbage fire, but probably having more to do with his already questionable stuff no longer playing well in the big leagues. He signed a two-year contract to play for Tokyo's Yomiuri Giants in 2011, but left the country promptly after the Tohoku earthquake in March and retired from baseball entirely. During his playing career, Bannister showed a particular interest in scouting reports and advanced analytics, years before players would make it part of their daily workflows. He leveraged his analytical reputation for a job in the Red Sox front office in 2015, and he climbed the ladder and became part of their World Series win in 2018 as an assistant pitching coach. In 2019, he joined the San Francisco Giants front office as their director of pitching, a role he keeps to this day. And considering how well the Giants pitching has been over the past two seasons, it seems to be a job he does quite well. In addition to his baseball duties, Bannister also owns a photography studio in Phoenix, Arizona, operated by his dad Floyd. He actually opened it in 2003 after graduating from USC, and 18 years later, it's still in operation. It doesn't have much to do with the Mets, but it's still pretty cool. Brian Bannister finished his career with 4.9 wins above replacement, according to Baseball Reference, by far the highest of that 2003 Mets draft class. He finished with a 37-50 record, no doubt hampered by playing most of his career in Kansas City, and with a 5.08 ERA, which is a little more on him. He has one World Series win as a coach, a pretty sweet gig for the Giants, a photo studio in Phoenix, and a small place in Mets history. That alone makes him unformidable. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Unformidable. Please check out more Mets stories and silliness at AmazonAvenue.com. Follow us on social, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is at Unformidable on Twitter. And as always, let's go Mets. Mm-hmm.